We uh, had a time of ministry last night. Didn't have a whole lot of folks, but we believe that God uh, put some seed out. You know, you don't always get to see the harvest when you put seed out. But you just put the seed out, and that's what we do. And it's a privilege to have my friend David Grisham here today. He runs a, a operation in Repent Amarillo, uh, in Amarillo, of course. And uh, he goes to the places to preach that you and I don't want to go to, to bring the Word of God. Amen? Isn't that what you do, brother? Uh, I picked up on him about four or five years ago on Facebook, and I followed him, and uh, I was just, uh, you know, he would post videos of people during Mardi Gras giving their heart to the Lord, and uh, the, I, the one that, I, that really impressed me and still does is when you uh, go to strip clubs and preach the gospel in the parking lot, I think that's an awesome thing. Who needs the gospel more than the sinners that are in those places? Amen? Don't they need the gospel? So um, it's a privilege to bring him up. And I want y'all to give him a big hand as he comes up. And he, he has carte blanche up here with me. <laughs> Thank you, brother. There's actually a little story behind each one of those pictures, if you'll let me tell you about it real quick. That was at an Amarillo Gay Pride event. We had 70 evangelists to that Gay Pride event. Raven Ministries and Repent Amarillo joined team together. And that was the last Gay Pride event in Amarillo by, outs by outstanding Amarillo. They went bankrupt after that year. We preached it. And it's gone. This Oscar, this is Oscar. This is out on Polk Street. And Oscar gave his life to Christ that night. That's him coming to Christ. Amen. Is that better? Okay. Yeah, that's Oscar giving his life to Christ. And that's planting seed at the Gay Pride. And they went, an outstanding Amarillo went bankrupt right after that. Out, that's outstanding. Yes, it is. That is outstanding. You know that uh, song they were playing earlier, Amazing Grace, you guys? Have you, how many of you guys have seen that movie, Amazing Grace? Those of you that have not seen it, I recommend that you watch it. It was written by a man who was a slave trader. And when Jesus Christ freed him of his slavery to sin, he could no longer stand to see other men in slavery in the world. Because when God puts his justice in your heart, then you want to see justice in the hearts of other men. And you want to see other people be free. You want people to be free. And that's why we go to strip clubs. Oh, and I've got some good news about that, brother, since you brought that up. The state of Texas seized for non-payment of taxes another strip club in Amarillo. There used to be seven strip clubs in Amarillo. We ourselves put one of them out of business. Repent Amarillo put one of them out of business. We put the rest of them up on a spiritual map in our city, and we encouraged the Christians in Amarillo to pray about these places because the Bible says that men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So when we 
Get rid of the places that suppress the truth and righteousness is exalted in your city. And now five out of the seven strip clubs are closed. Praise God for that. There's only two left. And guess which ones we preach at? We preach at those two and we're going to drive them under. We're going to use the power of God to drive them under. And that's what I want to talk to you about today is the power of God to change the world. Jesus Christ never held public office. Never. He never was the president of a country. He never led an army in the world, you know, with swords into victory like that. He was never a Napoleon. He was never a a great president of a country or the dictator of a nation. He didn't do things like that, and yet he's the most famous man that ever walked the face of the planet. He and his disciples changed the face of the world. It looks to me like we got more than 12 people in this room. Do you realize what you could change with this number of people? If Jesus and 12 disciples changed the world, could you not? Yes, you could. You could change the world. So there's no reason to change, not to change Chico, Texas, right? There's no reason not to change Decatur. There's no reason not to change the whole Dallas-Fort Worth area. There's no reason to cha- not to change the state of Texas. There's no reason for us not to change the world because we are not doing this in the flesh. It's not of our own power. It's the power of God. And that's what I want to talk to you about today is the power of God. I want to teach you about putting on the armor of God. I don't want to just tell you to put on the armor of God. I want to show you how to put it on. And I want to tell you that the reason God wants you to put on his armor is because he's preparing you for a fight. Last night we talked about bringing a righteous fight to the devil. You know, I told him last night that when I was a child, I was seven years old, I marched with Martin Luther King. And I stood on the courthouse steps in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I stood right next to Sidney Portier. There were some famous people there during that march. I was just a little old kid, and my family and I, we were just there. But we understood a righteous fight when we saw it. And folks, we've got a righteous fight on our hands. We always have as the church. And if we don't choose to get up out of our churches and take on the devil, he will come into our churches and take us on, I promise you. The fight's coming, whether we meet it head on or whether we choose to try to shy away from it. That fight is already here. We've got gay marriage that is now legal throughout the land. We've got abortion that's legal throughout the land. And these new videos are showing that not only are they killing these babies, they're chopping them up into pieces and selling their body parts. What is going on is reminiscent of Nazi Germany, and it's going on right here in America. Folks, we can't stand for this. We can't stand for it. We cannot allow this to take place in our own backyards, in our own cities, in our own nation, and do nothing. We can't. Because if God holds us accountable for every idle word, He's going to hold us accountable for what we choose to do or what we choose to not do. We preached at the largest abortion clinic in America, which is the one, the Planned Parenthood mega ginormous, it's six stories tall. It's like the Walmart of abortion clinics. And it's down there in Houston, Texas. And we stood out there by ourselves with one little Catholic lady while thousands of Christians drove by on that highway with something better to do. What better, what is there better to do than to do the will of God? 
There should have been a thousand Christians standing out there so that each one of those women that tried to go in there to kill their babies, they should have had to go through a thousand Christians pleading with them to please not kill their child, to pray for them, to preach to them, to witness to them, to lead them to Christ. Because if you lead that woman to Christ, you not only save that baby, you save every baby she's ever going to have. Because she's going to lead those children to the Lord, and she's certainly not going to be going into an abortion clinic. And so today I want to exhort you, I want to lift you up, I want to encourage you to prepare yourselves for the fight that is coming and is already here. And every Christian in this country is going to be faced with a choice. You're either going to fold and you're going to go into the world, or you're going to be persecuted as part of the kingdom of God. The Bible says that he who chooses to live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. It doesn't say he who goes to church is going to get persecuted. It doesn't say he who professes Jesus with his mouth is going to be persecuted. It says he who chooses to live a godly life. That is fruit. If you're producing fruit because you're obeying this word, if you're following the word of God, you're producing fruit and you're a threat to the enemy and he's going to persecute you. But guess what? Congratulations, if you do get persecuted, you're in good company. Because Jesus, they didn't crucify him on the cross for no reason. He was falsely accused of blasphemy. He was falsely accused of all kinds of crimes. And they nailed him to a cross. And he said that the world hated him because he testified of its works that they were evil. And if you do the same, the world will hate you. But guess what? God will be with you. And if God is with you, who can be against you? You know, every single one of the apostles died except for John, and that's because John took Jesus' mother under his wing, and he took care of Jesus' mother, and the promise of God is that if you honor your father and your mother, you'll be given long life on the earth. Well, he took care of Jesus' mother, and God fulfilled that promise and gave him long life on the earth because God always keeps his promises. But he keeps his promises to those who walk in those promises and take on the responsibility of obeying his word. So today I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, if you would please. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to talk about the full armor of God. Now I want to explain to you how to put on this armor before we tell you about the armor. Because I think you need to know how to put it on. I don't want to just tell you, put it on. I want you to know how to put it on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it talks about how do not be deceived that neither idolaters nor fornicators nor homosexuals or sodomites or drunkards, and all these people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But it says in verse 11, it says, And such were some of you, but you have been washed, that's salvation, and you have been sanctified, that is sanctification. The process of putting on the armor is the process of sanctification. Let me tell you how that works. Every person that gets saved is given a measure of faith. A measure of faith. And you choose by your free will to use that measure of faith to have a measure of belief. Now there are levels of belief because we know that a man came to Jesus and he said, Lord, can you... Can you help my son? He's demon-possessed. And Jesus said, do you believe that I can do this? He said, Lord, believe. Help me with my unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. 
That means there, some people have doubts. There are levels of doubt, right? Every time we're afraid, we have a level of doubt, right? We're afraid that maybe the Lord's not going to come through at this moment. Maybe something's going to happen that I, he's just not going to be there for me. So we all need a, a greater level of belief. But you use by your free will to take that measure of faith and have a measure of belief. Now, that's not mental assent. That's not mental assent like the hypocrite that sits in church and goes out and lives like the devil the rest of the week. Saying he believes in Christ is just mental assent. That's not a commitment of the heart. Relationship with God is a commitment of the heart. I'm married to my wife. I'm committed to her. If I just give mental assent to my marriage and go out and cheat on my marriage, I'm not going to be married very long. She may not leave me or forsake me, but I've left and forsaken her if I'm out being unfaithful, correct? And that's exactly what happens to the backslider and the hypocrite. He goes out and he's unfaithful to God by walking apart from God's word and disobeying him and being unfaithful to the king that he claims. Now, we use this measure of faith to have a measure of belief, which is a commitment of the heart. And then we use by our free will that measure of belief to have a measure of obedience. And then by that measure of obedience, we do a measure of good works. And it says in the book of James that faith without works is dead. And it says you will show your faith by your works. And then it also says that you will perfect your faith by your works. So when you do those good works for God, it perfects your faith. You go right back to faith again. God gives you an increase in faith, which gives you an increase in belief, which then gives you an increase in obedience, and then an increase in good works for God, and then it starts all over again. Folks, that is the process upward. Upward. That is the sanctification process step by step. And that's how you put on the full armor of God. Because when we start describing these steps of putting on the armor of God, you're going to see that process in the middle of all of that. You're going to see it in there. And you're going to, you're going to understand that by going through each one of these processes, you have the opportunity at every point you come to a crossroad. Am I going to use my belief to obey? Or am I going to do my own thing? And I'm, am I going to stagnate? You know, stagnating is a half step away from backsliding. You got to keep moving forward. You got to keep going up. Now, it works the opposite, too. If you do not obey and you do not do the good works, then it will weaken your faith, and your weakened faith will damage your belief. And the damage in your belief will damage your obedience, and the damage in your obedience will damage your good works, and you will spiral downward and you will backslide. That's how that works. So, that's the process of putting on the full armor of God. That is the process of sanctification. The purpose, and I want to say this very clearly, I don't want to offend anyone, I don't want to offend anybody, but I want to make this very clear, and I want you to remember this. It may say in our, in our founding documents in the Declaration of Independence that we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But in reality, according to this Declaration of Independence, we are supposed to be pursuing life in God, liberty in Christ, and the pursuit of holiness. Now, that is, that is not denigrating the, Demo- the, the, the Declaration of Independence. I'm not. I'm a patriot. I believe in our country. I love my country. But as my brother said, I'm first a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, first and foremost. So, life in God, 
liberty in Christ and the pursuit of holiness. That's the goal of the Christian. Okay, so if we turn over here to Ephesians chapter 6. It starts in verse 10. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. If you want to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, remember, we can't do this by ourselves. If we try to take on the devil on our own, just go back and read Job chapter 41 and have it, see that description of the devil. It says in there that if you take him on in the flesh, he will wallop you. You will never forget the fight if you live through it. As I heard a preacher one time say this, if you try to take on the devil in the flesh, he will stomp a mud hole in the middle of your butt and walk it dry. And he will. Only God can take on the devil. So you must do this fight in the spirit, in the spiritual realm. You must do it in the spirit, not in the flesh. Okay. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not yours, but his. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, that doesn't just mean you and your personal life. Although that does mean that. It means that if you're going to withstand the temptations of the devil in your personal life, you need to put on the full armor of God. But it also means that you need to put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the wiles of the devil in your culture, in your family, amongst your friends, at work, at school, on a national level in your nation too. If we're going to stand against the wiles of the devil when it comes to gay marriage, we're going to have to put on the full armor of God. We've got to prepare ourselves for the fight. Because if we don't have the full armor of God on, we're going to get whooped. Well, I'm going to explain to you here in a minute how, you know, that uh, what exactly God can do if you put on his armor. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So we don't do this in the flesh, right? But against principalities, against powers. Now, he does say there's powers in the darkness. There is power on that side. Witchcraft and all that kind of stuff is real, folks. It's real. It's demonic. It's real. I have seen demonically possessed people. I have, I have spoken to them. I actually was standing in front of a strip club one time, and a Catholic, I claim he was Catholic, demonically possessed. He, I was standing out on the grass preaching the gospel, and he came rushing up to the edge of the grass, and he stood right there screaming obscenities at me and threatening me. And he says, if you weren't over there preaching the gospel, I'd come over there and rip your head off. And I said, yeah, but you're not going to because God will not let you come as far as that grass. That's as far as you can go right there. You can't move beyond that. And he would, they would drag him back to the taxi for them to leave. He'd run back up to the grass. And he, they'd drag him back. He'd run back up to the grass. When they finally drug him off, he drove away. He was cursing at me all the way, screaming out the window. But he could not come any further than God allowed because... He that is in me is stronger than he that is in the world. Right? Same thing for you. But if you're going to face down the enemy, you've got to have on the full armor of God. Right? And that comes through the process of sanctification. You don't even have to consciously put it on. All you have to do is cooperate in each step of that process, and God will put it on for you. He'll put it on for you. Against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You're doing battle with the devil, folks. You're doing battle with the demons of this world. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, that is today, and having done all to stand. That's today. That's every day since since the beginning of, since the first sin of Adam, all the way to Armageddon. That's talking about every day. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now, this is where we start getting into the nuts and bolts of this. Girding your waist with truth. What is the truth? It's the Word of God. Who is the truth? Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say a way, a truth, and a life. The way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God's Word. When you start reading about the truth in the Bible, when it says truth, sometimes you can replace that with Jesus Christ. Take that word out and put Jesus Christ in there. And it'll give you a little bit greater understanding of what that scripture is trying to tell you. Because truth and Christ are synonymous. They are the same. He was 100% man, 100% God. He's 100% the word and 100% the truth. Right? He's 100% of all of that. He is the manifestation of God in the flesh. All of the Godhead bodily in him. That means the truth, the way, and the life. 100% all the way through. Now that truth, he says, gird your waist with the truth. Now what Paul is sitting, is doing here is he's describing something that people already knew about in those days. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about um, enter by the narrow gate instead of the wide gate? Did you know that the, the gates and the cities they would have these fortifications, these walls around the cities, okay? They'd have the walls around the cities, then they'd have an inner wall. So if the outer wall got breached, they could fall back to an inner wall and defend again their city against the invasion. And they would have these big gates on the inner uh, inner walls and a small gate next to it because at night they would close the big gates because the watchmen on the wall couldn't see very far at night. So they had to put the city in a defensive position at night every night to make themselves ready in case an army suddenly showed up out of the darkness. And they would close the wide gate, and they would open this little pedestrian gate, which is just about the size of one of those doors right there. He said, enter by the narrow gate, which only allows one man at a time to go through. That narrow gate is Jesus Christ. It's only as wide as one man. But he said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Broad is the gate that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. So the gates, the big gates next to it during the day were open for all of the commerce going through back and forth. So he was using this illustration that people had already knew about. And see, a lot of people don't know that these days because we don't think in those terms anymore. But when you look at it from their point of view, the way they saw it, then you can understand it the way Jesus meant it. He meant the narrow gate and the wide gate at night when it's dark, and it's dark now, folks. We're in the darkness. The narrow gate's the only way you can go through. It's the only way you can get in and out. That's what he was talking about. That's what he was talking about. And when he talked about the, a rich man going through the eye of a needle, well, there was a way if you got stuck on the other side of the gate that they had a, if you had a camel, he couldn't go through that door standing up. 
He had to be trained to get down on his knees and wiggle through on his knees. So what does that tell you? It tells you the rich man needs to be on his knees a lot, doesn't it? And he had to take everything off of his back. So the rich man's got to be willing to unencumber himself with all the things of the world so he can go through that narrow gate with a camel. So he's saying it's not impossible, but it's difficult to do. So in this armor that he's talking about right here, he's talking about the belt that goes on before you put on the rest of the armor. Now, this was a leather belt. It was wide and had hooks on it on each side, hooks. And what this means is that the truth must become the center of your life. It's in the center of your being, and it envelops you. This word of God, the truth, Jesus Christ, must be completely enveloping your life, and it must be the center of your life upon which the rest of the armor is go, it goes on first. The rest of the armor doesn't go on until you're grounded in the truth. If you're not grounded in the truth, you know, you can, you can be a Mormon or, a, or a, be involved in some other cult, and you don't have the full armor of God because it's not grounded in the truth. There's some sort of a lie that is surround, that your whole religious beliefs are based around, but your religious beliefs, your faith in God must be grounded in the truth. Now, he says, gird your waist with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness guards your heart. The further up you go in this process of sanctification, the thicker that armor gets. And it guards your heart more and more against what seems to try to come against your heart. It guards your heart, that breastplate of righteousness. Now, notice I said the belt had hooks on it. There are little loops on the inside of the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate, that would go over the hooks so that the weight of the armor rested on the belt, not on your shoulders. Because when you went to wield the sword and the shield, if you're having to move your arms around like this in battle, if that weight of that armor was on your shoulders, it would wear you out. So I'm telling you here today, folks, that if your righteousness rests on your own shoulders, in this world, it's going to wear you out. But that breastplate of righteousness, when it rests on the truth, the weight is on Jesus. It's not on you. And you're able to wield the sword and the shield much more effectively. That breastplate of righteousness is very important. It's not a backplate. We're not supposed to be running away from the battle. There's no armor that goes on the back. It goes on the front. And the reason, the reason that you wear this armor is because it's designed to be offensive as well as defensive. You're supposed to be on the attack. Jesus said, upon this, this truth, I will, upon this cornerstone, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell don't attack anybody. They are defensive in nature. They're guarding an entrance. And it is the church's responsibility to charge the gates of hell, like it says in, in Jude chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where it says, And on some have compassion, making distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. Pulling them out of the fire means we're kicking down the gates of hell and dragging people out of the fire. With the word of God, the truth, that's preaching to them, witnessing to them, ministering to them, so that they can be saved. 
We're supposed to kick down the gates of hell. But too many times in the church today, people think that the gates of hell are attacking us and we're just defending ourselves. It's time to get off a defense and go on offense. This is the reason our country is in this mess that it's in. And I'm not blaming this church individually. I'm not blaming any person here individually. I'm telling you the church as a whole in America has not stood its ground, has not gone on the offensive enough. Because just like I said last night... At Decatur, at Decatur Square, this battle didn't begin with gay marriage. Back in the 1950s, we had no-fault divorce laws. And what did that lead to? The destruction of marriage, women going into poverty, children being uh, having without their fathers. Child support does not make you a father. Being with your children makes you a father. Spending time, not necessarily money. They need your time. They need your fatherhood. They need the guidance of God in their lives. And now we've got a lot of godless children running around. And back in the old days, when we were fighting a righteous battle against the Jim Crow laws, we had Selma. Selma's a lot different than Ferguson, folks. If you look at what happened in Selma and you look at what happened in Ferguson, you can get a gauge of where our country went and where it's going. When you, look at, when you look at how men and women were married for years back in the 30s and 40s and all of that, and when you went to a motel room, if you weren't married, you had to sign as Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You had to lie, or they wouldn't even give you a hotel room. Then in the 60s came along you know, cohabitation and all that kind of stuff, and then now we've got gay marriage, and it's not going to stop there, folks. It's not going to stop there until the devil has destroyed this country, destroyed the church, and ruined every single person's lives until we're all dead and in hell. Only then will the devil be satisfied. But we're not going to let it get that far. We're going to fight. Some of us are going to fight. And last night I called everybody to a righteous fight. Today I'm calling you to a righteous fight. I'm telling you to put on the full armor of God. That breastplate of righteousness rests on the truth, not on your own shoulders. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel for peace, that means that wherever you go, you're supposed to preach the gospel. You're shodding your feet with the gospel of peace. That means wherever you go, you witness for Christ. Everywhere, whether it's the laundromat, whether it's Walmart, whether it's school or work, or whatever. Jesus Christ gave his whole life on the cross. He didn't give just part of it. He gave his whole life on the cross. And we got to give our whole lives. We can't just we cannot be worried so much about our jobs. You know, Jesus said, you know, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his very soul? So what is it going to profit you to keep your job and not do the will of God? What is it going to profit you to keep family members that don't love God anyway. You're not gonna, if they're not going to get saved, you're not going to see them in heaven anyway. So why would you risk losing them in the world and keeping your mouth shut about the gospel? Why would you not preach to them? Why would you not witness to them? Why would you not risk losing the relationships in this world for the sake of the relationship you're going to have with Jesus Christ in heaven forever? It's a lot more to be gained in heaven than there is on earth. So let's, let's be willing to sacrifice the things of the world just as Jesus did for our salvation. We need to be willing to sacrifice the things of the world for what he did for us. We must be willing to sacrifice those things. We must be willing to go to jail, go to prison. Paul went to prison. I don't think it was such a bad thing for Paul. Even if an angel doesn't let you out, you know, and he might. 
<laughs> an angel might open the gates and let you out. And what did he do when he got let out? He went right back to preaching the gospel, right in the place he was told not to go. He defied them and said, I will not do what you tell me to do. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. And he went right back to the same place doing the same thing he was told not to do. And he preached. Amen. So shod your feet with the peace of the gospel. Wherever you go, preach. You go where God tells you to go. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That shield of faith, remember we just talked about that, faith being strengthened, being perfected by good works. You want to build your shield of faith? Now, that's the flexible armor. See, the the breastplate guards the front, but that shield of faith guards your sides, your flanks, guards, and you can move it around everywhere you need to face the enemy. And the way you get that thing strengthened even more is by the process of sanctification. Sanctification thickens that breastplate of righteousness. It thickens that shield of faith. When you put your faith in what God says, I'll tell you something, folks. I have learned through experience that your faith in God is directly proportional to your level of obedience to God. If you say you believe, you will obey. I was telling somebody here earlier that when we preach at South Padre Island, there's a great big sign. It's bigger than that screen that was up here. A big sign, and it says, Notice, pursuant to such and such, such and such uh, city ordinance, there's a $500 fine for bringing glass bottles or glass containers on the beach. So all the kids, 30,000, 40,000 of them that are out there partying and getting drunk, are walking around with aluminum beer cans. And they're walking around with plastic liquor bottles. Why? Because they believe what that sign says, that they'll get fined $500 for drinking out of glass containers. But they don't believe what this sign says in Ephesians 5.18 where it says, Do not be drunk with wine, for in this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. They, if you believe, you will obey. And your obedience will build your faith. It'll build that, that breastplate of righteousness. It'll build that shield of faith. If you believe, you will obey. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet of salvation. God wants to change the way we think. I like to look at it kind of like this. I want everything that goes into my mind to go through this first. Right here. Just like that. I want to wear the helmet of salvation on my head. I want everything that goes into my eyes to come through just like this. I want everything that goes into my ears to go through the Word of God first because the Bible says test every spirit to see if it is of God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. I want to test it by this Word. I want everything that goes into my heart to go right through here first. And I want everything that comes out of my mouth to come out of here first. I want everything that I say to be filtered through the Word of God so that it, is, it edifies someone, it reaches someone, it preaches the truth to somebody. Because I'm going to be, the Bible says I'm going to be, be held accountable for every idle word, right? I'm going to get judged for every idle word. So if I get judged, I might as well get judged by this, right? Might as well get judged by that. And you've got to change the way you think. 
God wants to change the way you think. Let me give you an example. When I was in college, I was an agnostic, and I used to believe in evolution. I'm going to tell you right now, evolution is a lie of the devil. Absolutely is a lie of the devil. You know, I, now I go preach, and they say, well, you just bring God down here in front of me, and I'll believe him. And I'll say, well, you just bring an ape down here, let him evolve into a man in front of me, and I'll believe that. And they'll say, well, that takes millions of years. Oh, well, that sounds like faith. They just have faith in something else. They can't see evolution. They can't produce it in a laboratory. So they are relying on faith. And they say, well, your book was written by men. I said, well, who wrote your textbooks? God wrote your textbooks? I'm sorry, I think man wrote those. They're just putting their faith in something else because the desire of their heart is not to believe. They don't want to believe. An atheist can no more find God than the same reason a robber can't find a cop because he doesn't want to run into him. But anyway, as I was saying, here's what the Lord gave me in Revelation. Okay, This is directly from the Lord. In the book of Genesis, God did not create man, Adam and Eve, as babies. He created them as adults. Why? To nurture children. Be fruitful and multiply. He presented Eve to him as his wife and said, be fruitful and multiply. So he created them at an advanced state of being, an advanced age, for the purpose of nurturing children. When you go, if you were to go back in time in a time machine and look at Adam and Eve and you were to say, well, how old do you think they are? Well, they look like they're 20, 25 years old. Wrong. They're one day old. You would greatly overestimate their age. If you were to go back in time and cut down one of the trees, well, there's a hundred rings in that tree. It must be a hundred years old. Nope. It was created three days ago. It was created at a mature state of being, already producing fruit, so it could nurture Adam and Eve. And then God created the earth because he planted the trees not in molten lava, but he planted them in dirt, and he created Adam from the dust of the ground. Why did he create the earth in an advanced state of age? Because he did it to nurture the Garden of Eden. So if you were to look at the tree and estimate its age, you would greatly overestimate its age. Well, guess what? If you cut the earth open like scientists do and you start counting the strata and you start thinking, well, this, this, and this, and this, this means it's a billion years old. Guess what? You're going to greatly overestimate its age. I don't know how old the earth is, but it's a lot younger than what scientists say. It is a lot younger than that. God gave me that revelation. He told me, look, it's right there in my word if you just know how to look at it. If you just read it and seek after his wisdom, God will reveal his word to you in revelation and it will change the way you think. And as a man thinks, he does. So if you change the way you think, you'll change the way you do things. And it will change your mind. And this, think of this. Bible says that your tongue is a rudder that steers a great ship. Okay? Your tongue is the rudder. Your mind is the captain's wheel that steers the tongue. And your will is the captain. So however your will goes, if God changes your will and your thinking and changes your mind, then it steers your tongue and steers you however you're going to go. Now, if you allow the devil, the Bible says that the entire world lies under the sway of the wicked one, including the college textbooks, then if you allow the devil to sway you and teach you his word 
It will change the way you think. It will change the things you do. It will lead you away from God. If you allow God to change the way you think, it will change the things you do, and it will lead you to Christ. That's the only way he's going to lead you, is to Christ. Now, he also says this. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's talk about that sword. Because that's, the, that's your offensive weapon. I was talking about last night that the sword is two-edged, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. One side of that sword is judgment, and the other side is mercy. If you let God use that sword the way he wants to in the word, he'll take that sword and he'll cut the cancer of sin right out of your heart like a surgeon's scalpel. He'll cut it right out of your life. It says in John chapter 15 that God is the vine dresser and he prunes you as a vine. He uses the word of God, the sword, to prune you, to cut the dead areas out of your life, to cut the sin out of your heart, to cut the disobedience and the fear and everything else that causes doubt in your life about the word of God. He will cut it out like a surgeon's knife. But if you choose to rebel against God, he'll use the other side of the sword. He will cut you clean in half with it. And you will be apportioned with the hypocrites. So you can choose which other side of the sword you want. But let's look at that sword, the word of God. Let's go back to Egypt with Moses and Aaron. Two men. What did they have in their hands? A stick. They had a stick. That's all they had. A stick. And what did they have behind them in the flesh? An entire army of slaves that had no weapons at all. That's all they had. Egypt was the most powerful nation on the planet, the most powerful empire in the world with huge armies, chariots, swords, and a man who led it, Pharaoh, who thought he was God. But guess what? The word of God came out of those two men's mouths and Egypt was totally destroyed. The word of God destroyed the most powerful empire in the world. So much so that even Pharaoh's advisors said, Pharaoh, look at Egypt. It is destroyed. Let these people go. Please let them go. Get rid of them. And he did. And then like a big idiot, he followed them and tried to attack him in whatever remnant of power he had, whatever remnant of glory, whatever remnant of his army was destroyed and left at the bottom of the Red Sea. Gone. Done by the word of God. You know why America is so afraid of Iran getting nuclear weapons? Because America is no longer wielding the word of God. Because if we had the word of God, we would not be afraid of nuclear weapons in the hands of Iran because the word of God would make those things blow up in their own faces. We don't have to be afraid of any other nation if we have the word of God. Because this sword built this nation, destroyed the land of Egypt with two men, King David. He went against, he went against a, a giant, Goliath and an entire Philistine army. And then Saul and his army were over there shaking in their earthly armor. David tried to put on his armor, and it didn't fit. You know why? Because there, aren't, there is no carnal armor for spiritual battles. There are no carnal solutions for spiritual problems. 
Believe me, I've got a favorite candidate I'd like to vote for president, but I am under no illusions that one man in the presidency is going to turn this country around. God is going to turn this country around, or this country is going to... If we're not one nation under God, we're going to be one nation gone under. One nation gone under without God. The only thing that's going to save this country is what built this country, and that's the Word of God. David, David came at the Goliath, and he looked at him, and he wasn't terrified. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that stands before the armies of the living God? And he charged at him with a slingshot and killed him and cut his head off with his own sword. And what was the response of the Philistines? They fled in terror. An entire army went to flight, not because they were terrified of a little shepherd boy, but because they were terrified of the God that was with him. They were terrified of the anointing of God on David. That's what drove them in fear. Moses didn't terrify Pharaoh. It was God who destroyed everything that they stood for, everything they had, all their wealth and all their power. They were terrified of the God that destroyed everything they had. Then look at Jesus. He travels on a boat and comes over on the other side on the shore, and a man comes out of the tombs. And he was possessed by demons. And everybody was terrified of this one man. And Jesus said, what what is the name of the demon? He says, my name is Legion. There was a legion of demons in him. A legion of Roman soldiers is 6,666 men. There were over 6,000 demons in this man. And every one of them trembled before the face of God. Trembled before Jesus. What do you think you can do when Jesus said many more works that you will do after him? He's telling you that you can send an army to flight. You can destroy a nation with the word of God. If you carry it, all you need is a stick. All you need is a slingshot to kill a giant. All you need is the word of God and a and 6,000 demons will tremble before you. Not because of you, but because of what you carry inside of you. You are an earthen vessel filled with the Holy Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit that will terrify them. Folks, you're ready for this battle if you'll just take on the power of God and the authority He's given you to wield it. You have the power available to you. It's just a matter of taking it. Taking that sword and swinging it and do it the way God tells you to. I guarantee you, you cannot lose because God has never lost a battle. And if you fight with him in this battle, you will see that victory. You will see that victory. I'm so tired of so many Christians saying that they can't get victory. Folks, victory is always on the other side of the battle. If you run from the battle, you've given the enemy the field and you will never see the victory. It's on the other side of the battle. The victory of the resurrection was on the other side of the cross. He had to go through the suffering. Great is the rewards of heaven for those who choose to walk the path of the suffering of Christ. And great is the reward of heaven for those who choose to wield the word of God in victory with God. But grace is the curses of hell for those who reject it. He says here, Praying always with all prayer and supplication, the Spirit being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication 
for the saints. One of the swords that you carry is prayer. One of the swords you carry is prayer. You can pray and wield that sword. The effective, fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Well, there's a lot said in that statement. Effective, fervent, righteous. You want your prayers to be answered, you better address all three of those things in your life. An effective prayer, that's a prayer within God's will. You're asking for what God wants. Second thing, fervent. It means you mean it in your heart. You're not just playing around. You're not just giving a little, oh yeah, Lord, oh yeah, let's pray for this guy, blah, 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 and go on, what's for lunch? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that you are fervent. It means that it comes from your heart. It means to cry out to God. If you truly want it, you'll cry out to God for it. And righteous, that breastplate of righteousness will help you. If you're a righteous person in the eyes of God, you have right standing with God, right relationship with God, then he's going to answer your prayers. I'll give you an example. Our house burned down in May of last year on Mother's Day. There was a massive wildfire went through Fritch, Texas, burned down 236 homes. Ours was one of them. Gave us all kinds of opportunities for ministry, especially with my son. My son was not really walking with God at the time, was doubting, you know, if there even was a God, that sort of thing. And I got on my knees and I prayed when that fire was happening. And I didn't know if my house was standing or anybody's houses. It was just in the middle of the whole thing. And I prayed out loud to God. I said, Lord, you know, I've got some insurance, you know, take care of this. I'm not, not insured enough, but I've got some insurance. My son has nothing. They just had a baby that morning. Our grandson, Ethan, was born at 530 that morning. And that fire happened in the afternoon. And I got on my knees and I fervently prayed to God. And I asked him, Lord, you could take my house. That's fine. Let my house burn to the ground, but save my son's house. And do it in a way that he would know it was from you. Well, that fire burned up to my son's house. It burned around his house, went around his air conditioner, went around his vehicles, went under one of his vehicles and didn't even scorch it, went around the other side of his carport, burned all the way around, and not one, not one ounce of damage to his house. Not one ounce of damage. Not, and to top it off, that's not even the best part. The best part of it is this. My wife had, had used a gas can, a plastic gas can for a lawnmower, and she had borrowed this from them, and she brought the can of gas back and set it right next to the house. Well, that fire burned right around that gas can. That gas can wasn't even melted. And if it had caught fire, it would burn the whole house down. Burned right around it. And when my son went out two or three days later and picked it up, there was a piece of paper underneath it, and it was burned all around on the edges. And you know what it had on there? It had a picture of Jesus, and it said, Jesus, there is power in the name. On that piece of paper, God saved my son's house and left a calling card to show who did it. It made the hair on my son's neck stand up. He's got that picture framed in his living room today. It's right there reminding him of who saved his house. Effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you will serve God and you will go places that you don't think that you can go, 
But you shouldn't be afraid to go there because God is with you. Moses didn't want to go before Pharaoh. He argued with God. You know how you know you've lost an argument with God? You've opened your mouth. The minute you open your mouth and argue with God, you've lost the argument. Because guess what? He's always right. And, and if you're arguing with him, well, guess what? You're wrong. Okay? Just accept it. Move on. Okay, yes, Lord, I'll go do it. I would say something stupid here, but I'll save my breath. Just do what the Lord tells you to do. Moses didn't want to go. But you, there are places that you're not going to want to go, things you're not going to want to say, things you're not going to want to do. But if you're willing to go and speak and do those things, you'll be amazed. You will live a life that is much larger than yourself because you're serving a God that is bigger than anything in the universe. You're serving a God that's bigger than anything. Go to these places and do the things that God has told you to do regardless of what he tells you. John chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus' mother looks at the servant and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. Make that the motto of your life as a Christian. Whatever he says to you, do it. That will build your faith. That will sanctify you. Every turn, every opportunity you have to exercise your free will, choose God's way every single time. And I promise you, you'll see miracles all around you. You'll see miracles in your life. Your prayers will get answered. You'll walk in victory. You'll put your head down at night and sleep with peace because money can buy you a bed, but it can't buy you sleep. And I'm, asking, I'm telling you right now that from now on, when you pray... When you pray and you ask for provision, money is fine. We all need money to do things. That's fine. But concentrate not on the provision of money, but concentrate on the provision of power. Ask for the power of God. It is the power of God that was operating in Paul when he set whole cities in an uproar. It was the power of God in Moses that defeated Egypt. It was the power of God in David that killed Goliath and set a whole army to flight. It was the power of God in Jesus that made an entire legion of demons tremble before him. And when you have that power and when you ask for it and God gives it and you, your effective, fervent prayers ask for power... It will come, and you will get it, and you'll see it operating in your life. Now, to finish up, I want to pray over you guys. I want to pray over the church today. I know if I say, will anybody that needs more armor of God please come up to the front? We'll all be up at the front at the altar, so we'll just might as well just keep your seats. <laughs> and we'll just pray right here. I want to pray that God that God grants the prayers of this church. I want to pray that God would instill you with a fire in your heart that when you leave these pews, you go out into the mission field beyond those doors and that you lead people to Christ and that you witness to your families and you are a witness to the world and you walk in righteousness with God and people will see the power of God operating in your life and when you speak Power will come out of your mouth because you will be speaking the word of God. That's what I want to pray for you today. Lord God, our heavenly Father, all praise and power and glory be to your name. Father God, we beseech you today. We cry out to you today, Lord, that you would impart power upon this church, that you would, that you would set the fire of the Holy Spirit on the heads, tongues of fire on the heads of every person here today. 
that when they come out of this place, they would pour out into the streets as the first church did, and thousands came to the church and got saved. Lord, we ask right now that you'd give power over this church, that you would give power to the hearts that are here, that you, they would speak with the power of your word out of their mouths, and hearts would be convicted. Their hearts would be cut with the sword, the word of God, and that they would speak, and minds would be changed, lives would be changed, devils would flee. Nations would be built or destroyed based upon your will and that entire armies of of enemies would flee when they see this church coming. The devil would say, oh my gosh, they're awake again and they're wrecking my kingdom. Lord, I just ask right now that you'd give them unspeakable power, that you would give them a provision of power, that you would give them authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and they would not dance around them, but they would stomp all over them, Lord. And they would lead this city, Chico, Texas, into the righteousness of Christ. And it would spread outward here and go to all the surrounding cities in Decatur, Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. Lord, Lord, we have enough people in this church to change the world because you can change the world. It's you that changes the world. And we ask right now, Lord, that you would imbibe these people with power. That you would answer their prayers. That when they call, that you would hear You would hear from the halls of heaven and you would render judgments that they might go out into the world and preach your word and people's hearts would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.